0: Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, for great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever, praise the Lord. Tonight's second reading comes from Revelation chapter chapter 7, starting at verse 9, you can find it on page 999 of the Red Pew Bibles, starting at verse 9. After this I looked and there were a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.
1: Good evening. Allow me to uh, add my welcome uh, to that which Angus gave you earlier on. Uh, Richard is my name. I'm the Youth and Young Adults Minister here at uh, Christ Church Inner West, uh, and especially, if you like, uh, here at uh, St. John's in Asheville. Uh, Pleasure to uh, be with you this evening uh, and to uh, open up God's word for us tonight. Uh, We're continuing in, it's the last week, in fact, in this short series we've been doing on uh, basically Psalms of Praise. We've had a psalm of uh, weakness, if you like. Uh, Last week we looked at a psalm of the whole earth singing for the God of glory, uh, the whole of creation bringing its praise to its creator. And tonight we finish off by uh, thinking about uh, humanity singing for the God of love uh, in the psalm that we had read for us just before. Um, The shortest psalm in the Bible, two verses, there you go. The shortest chapter in the whole Bible, if you like. So um, obviously a short sermon. Maybe? We'll see. We'll see how we go. Uh, I'm uh, going to uh, pray for us, uh, that God will be with us, that he'll uh, work in us by his spirit as we hear his word tonight, uh, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you're a God who wants to relate to us, to talk to us, for us to know you, uh, and that you help us to do that. You give us the opportunity to do that by reading your word together uh, in the pages of the Bible. Uh, Father, thank you that there we meet you, and we see who you are, we see uh, what it is that you've done for this world, uh, especially that we see all you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Thank you that then in these pages we meet him. We thank you too for your promise that as we read your word, as we hear it taught, as we discuss it and have it on our hearts and uh, in our mouths as we can uh, consider it together, that you'll work in us by your spirit, uh, that this is not a dead word but a living word because you work through it uh, using your own power, your own grace and goodness. And so we pray, Father, uh, work in this by your spirit tonight so that we might be more like our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, last week, as many of you will know, uh, was NAIDOC week, uh, that week uh, each year where we celebrate the culture and achievements uh, of our First Nations people here in Australia. Uh, I preached this sermon last week at 5DOC actually, when it actually was NAIDOC week, uh, but I thought like, there's, no, there's never a bad time to be talking about uh, our First Nations people and to be uh, celebrating them and their achievements, so we're going to just roll out the sermon as it was last week and keep uh, talking about these things as well. And it turns out Psalm 117 is the perfect psalm to be doing that with. So we're going to continue on that theme tonight. Uh, you can see on the screen in front of you uh, a map uh, of the different language groups of the land that we now call Australia. Uh, those are languages and nations represented uh, in uh, this country, on this continent, before the days of European settlement. Uh, and those uh, cultures represented there uh, have all kinds of beautiful, beautiful things to celebrate. Uh, not least among the achievements, of course, of our First Nations people is the simple act of survival. Uh, We live on lands that European settlers took by force from people who'd been custodians of these lands for many, many thousands of years beforehand. The shared history of our nation with our indigenous peoples uh, is one that includes dispossession, that includes murder and the separation of families, that includes woefully uneven distribution of the many, many resources and the huge wealth and prosperity of our nation. You see, Europeans arrived on these shores uh, in many ways, whether they would put it like this or not, convinced that uh, they were superior and entitled, that they were bringing civilization to an uncivilized place. Uh, They arrived, whether implicitly or explicitly, with the message that to become better humans meant to become more European. One of the things that Europeans brought with them, of course, was Christianity, was the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Christianity is woven into the tragic history of European settlement of these lands in a a complex mix of both positive and negative ways. Uh, Many First Nations peoples have heard the good news of the Lord Jesus and put their trust in him. Uh, The last census uh, that we had uh, uh, puts that number at 55%. 55% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, say that they are Christians. Uh, That's a remarkable figure, uh, really, when you think about it. Uh, It's 3 or 4% higher than the rest of the population on average. Uh, and when you think that, actually, lots of those people, well-meaning, good-natured, I'm sure, genuinely Christian people who brought the gospel to these lands, to our First Nations people, thought actually that following Jesus also meant becoming more European. Uh, given the the uh, tragedies of our history in all kinds of ways that Christians, like all Australians, are complicit in in different ways and to different degrees... What a remarkable testimony to the goodness of God, to his kindness and grace in Jesus, that that many of our First Nations people call themselves followers of Jesus. So it's complicated, our relationship with our First Nations people. And those complications are really just one instance of an objection that is often raised about Christianity. That objection runs a little bit like this. What gives you the right to say that your God is the one true God? What gives you the right to tell other people that they should worship your God, that they should follow your religion? Isn't the call to convert to your own religion simply arrogant, divisive, even oppressive? Isn't it just one more way in which the powerful say to the vulnerable, no, you need to live on my terms? Who are Christians to say to our First Nations people, or for that matter, anyone, that their religion is false, that ours is true. With that objection in mind and the uh, tragic history of a European settlement of these lands in the back of your mind, uh, listen again to the opening line of Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. Do you see what the psalmist is saying here? He's saying, my God, not your God. Come and worship my God. My God is the true and living God. My God is the one who you should praise. When you see it in this light, Psalm 117 becomes actually quite confronting, doesn't it, all of a sudden? There's a big, big claim being made here. This tiny little psalm is far, far bigger than you might realize at first glance. It's almost, in one sense, like a kind of cute little mantra of a psalm something you could memorise and say over again and again and again and just have in the back of your mind. But it packs an enormous punch. Uh, At the risk of (coughs) spoiling the ending, uh, this turns out to be a good thing, right? This invitation to praise, uh, the praise, the God of Israel, the praise and worship and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the end, it's an invitation to true and lasting peace. You see, this tiny little psalm, in its own simple way, packs in the very heart of the theology of the whole of the Bible. It packs into it the very beauty and centrality of the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the invitation held out to become one of his people, to give your life over to praising him, to throw your lot in with him. But to see just how wonderful an invitation that is, we first need to see just how scandalous it is. And so we're going to take some time to unpack this psalm under three headings. Uh, firstly the scandal of praise Uh, secondly the reason for praise and finally the practice of praise so let's dig in a little bit more on what is uh, so scandalous about this tiny tiny little psalm Uh, the psalmist says praise the Lord all you nations and the Lord in question is very straightforwardly Yahweh the God of Israel this isn't a call to worship deity in general This is not a call to worship the idea of God, to become somehow just a little bit more spiritually attuned in your life. No, this is a call to worship this God. No other God, this God only. The one true and living God who's revealed himself through the history and experience of a specific people, the nation of Israel. Uh, This is a scandalous thing to claim, a scandalous call to make in uh, two different ways. Uh, Firstly, it could just be a little bit embarrassing I don't know if you, uh, you know, some scandals that you see politicians have a real, genuine, outrageous corruption, and you get really angry about it. Sometimes they just do things that are actually just a little bit embarrassing for them, and you kind of, you know, you feel a bit sorry for them at the same time. It could be that this is an embarrassing scandal like that. Now, you see, Israel were not a great empire. They were constantly at risk and under pressure from the larger nations around them for basically all of their history. If you read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, what you see is nation after nation, superpower after superpower, sweeping through Israel, and Israel going, oh, I'm going to make an alliance with that person, oh, and now with that person, now with that nation, to just try and keep it together and keep themselves safe. It's an incredibly anxious existence. And so it's entirely possible that the nations around them would hear a call like this, come and praise our God, and just kind of laugh. Really? Your God? What would I want to, ha- what would I want to do- have to do with that God? I think it's probably a little bit like uh, this uh, scene from, uh, this is my favorite scene from any Marvel film at all ever, this like little 30 seconds. If you disagree with me, you are wrong, but we can talk about it later. I think probably what the other nations might say about Israel's call to praise their God is a little bit like this interaction between Loki and the Hulk. <clears throat> needs some anger management loki is um just you know a fool and it's fun to laugh at him you see what's going on loki goes i'm a god praise me right and hulk goes "Mm, really i'm just going to beat the pulp out of you and then remind you how puny you are i think possibly a lot of the nations around israel if they'd heard israel singing this song making this call to praise the nations that's what they do they turn around and go your puny god really yours have got no reason to do that. My gods seem pretty powerful. My nations keep beating yours to a pulp. On the one hand, this could just be a little bit pathetic, right? We hear this sometimes in our own culture, where you will say, you know, I follow the Lord Jesus, and the, the response will pretty much be, what, are you a child? Like, really? Why do you do that? Do you just have some kind of deep-seated psychological need that you need to meet somewhere? Or are you just a little bit weak and pathetic? Who needs a God like that? It's just a little bit childish, a bit embarrassing. On the other hand, this could be seen as a straightforwardly violent scandal, as one of those really, really corrupt and unjust scandals that we like to get so angry about. You see, the nations are spoken of a lot in the Psalms, but usually not in a positive way. Usually the nations are examples of rank ungodliness. They're evil people who are opposed to the one true and living God that Israel worships who are oppressors of Israel, of God's own people. Most of the references to the nations in the Psalms speak of them as enemies and call on God to destroy them. What then would it make of the call in Psalm 117 to those same nations to come and worship Israel's God? Is this actually simply just a kind of colonial moment? of saying, you know what, actually we want to gain power over your nation so you come and worship our God and then you'll be living on our terms and we'll have the the power and control back? Is this simply a bigoted and oppressive dismissal of other people's beliefs, maybe just sheer arrogance? Uh, If uh, you uh, think about it and uh, think about the world we live in, uh, the scandalous nature of the call to praise Yahweh is still seen as deeply objectionable. To claim that Jesus is Lord and that following him is the only way to enter God's family, the only way to really and truly be the human being that God has made you to be, is either an embarrassingly childlike superstition or an outright offence, even a danger to the good order and, uh, and structure of society. Uh, you may have experienced this in your, in your workplace or on campus, uh, that actually you talk about being a Christian or, or mention Christian things and people turn around and go, how pathetic! Really? That's just dumb. Or they turn around and go, how dare you say that? How dare you say that your God is the one true and living God? How dare you make any kind of exclusive claim that this is the way to know uh, the, the, the real heart of reality? Uh, if you look around our media, you see both of these lines trotted out pretty frequently as well. Still deeply, deeply objectionable in these two different ways. It might even be the case that it's true in your home life, that you live in a household where actually to speak of the things of God To claim Jesus as the Lord of the world, to say that you follow him, brings either just kind of patronising dismissal and sneering, or on the other hand, outright rejection. Often when we're confronted with moments like this in the Old Testament, where we go, ah, just didn't you wish it was just a little bit more straightforward, a little bit nicer? We think, let's go to the New Testament. That'll help us out. Not so much, sadly, in this particular case, at least. You see, the Psalms of ancient Israel are one thing, but the New Testament doesn't help us here either. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, the Apostle Peter, speaking about Jesus, uh, proclaims that there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now, Peter, of course, was just proclaiming what Jesus himself had already said. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These kinds of claims are often disparaged in our world as a quote-unquote fundamentalism. Uh, It's an exclusive claim, a claim that no, this is the only way. And exclusive claims in our world are often seen as dangerous. Uh, Tim Keller helpfully responds to this line of argument. Tim Keller helpfully responds to pretty much every line of argument. Isn't it it good? It's useful. Uh, Anyway, I think he's quite helpful on this. Uh, Here's what he has to say uh, about this particular objection. He says it's common to say that fundamentalism leads to violence. Yet all of us have fundamental, unprovable faith commitments that we think are superior to those of others. For example, skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection itself is a religious belief. It assumes that God is unknowable, or that God is loving but not wrathful, or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. He concludes The real question then is which fundamentals will lead their believers to be the most loving and receptive to those with whom they differ? Which set of unavoidably exclusive beliefs will lead us to humble, peace-loving behaviour? You see what he's getting at? He's saying that actually everyone has fundamental beliefs. Everyone has things that they think are true, that they base their life on in all kinds of ways. And so the question becomes, which ones of those are going to work? Which ones of those will lead not to division, not to oppression, not to violence, but instead to peace and harmony? The question, if you, uh, if you want to put it in the terms of our psalm tonight, is uh, on what basis can God's people claim that all people, all nations, should praise this God? Is there something in this scandalous call to praise that makes this religion, this object of praise, this God really and truly worthy of such a claim? In other words, what's the reason for the, the praise that the nations are being called to? And that's what we're going to turn our attention to now. One of our culture's favourite uh, buzzwords at the moment is the word inclusion. Have you talk, heard, about, heard the word inclusion be thrown around from time to time? Uh, inclusion is a good word. It's a great word. It's a good thing, actually. Uh, to be included means to be acknowledged, to be accepted as you are, to find your place in a community of love and care. Inclusion isn't a bad word. Everyone wants to be included. Everyone needs to be included. It's part of being a human being is to find yourself in a place where you are loved and accepted for who you are amongst people whom you can contribute to and, be, and a community you can be a part of. The Bible is all for this. In fact, if you read the Old Testament law, there's all kinds of ways in which Israel were to, to uh, just make space in their life for people who didn't quite fit the categories of the day, to make space for people to be included, who would very very often be excluded from the life of a nation. Inclusion isn't a bad word, but don't you think it feels kind of strangely clinical? Don't you think that uh, inclusion just sounds a little bit like uh, a policy that a government government department or a corporation might have? When I hear inclusion, I think of lists of strategies and indicators that a a body of people might have uh, to say, this person has been included. We have ticked the boxes. Inclusion has happened. That's what I think of when I hear that word. Uh, The Bible's really on for this, actually. The The Bible wants people to be loved. God wants people to be loved, to find their place, to be acknowledged and accepted and made a part of something. But the Bible has a better, a warmer, a deeper, a more comprehensive word for this. The Bible's word for it is love. And that's the reason that the psalmist here gives for his call to praise. Now, let's read Psalm 117 again. Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples. Why? For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. What makes this God worthy of praise? What makes it make sense to call everyone to praise this God? It's his love. The psalmist describes God's love as steadfast, that is, a love that can be trusted, a love that's consistent, a love that always does what it says it will do. And he tells us two other things about God's steadfast love. Firstly, he says that God's steadfast love is great. I don't know about you, but the weather hasn't been so great lately. On the other hand, the uh, Cricket World Cup, that was a great game. That's not what we're talking about here. We use the word great all the time, right, just to mean that something was pretty cool. Now, the word actually being used here is a Hebrew word that's been translated uh, as great in our psalm. It's a military term. It means powerful. It means able to achieve. What we're being told here is that God's steadfast love isn't feeble. It isn't weak or limp. God doesn't just have nice, warm feelings when it talks about God's love in this psalm. Rather, he's someone who's able to put his love into practical action. His love is able to achieve great things for the people who he sets his love and affection on. This love is powerful. This love will change things. Secondly, we're told that God's steadfast love is uh, paired together, is uh, grouped with his faithfulness, a faithfulness which the psalmist says endures forever. In other words, again, God's love is constant. It's unchanging. It's predictable, if you like. See this again and again in the the story of Israel. See it again and again. I'm sure in your own life, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, the more you stuff up, the more you fail to go the direction God wants you to do, he's just always there. You can't get rid of the guy. He keeps coming back again and saying, I still love you. I'm still on for you. I still want good things for you. God's love doesn't change like so much of the love in the world around us does. Uh, You know this, of course, in your own life. Uh, You know that the people who love you the most are also often the people who hurt you the most. The people who love you the most are the ones who can do the most damage, often in the simplest ways. The ones who, uh, when they leave, it hurts the most. The ones who, if they get angry with you, it cuts the deepest. At the same time, of course, you know that your own love for the people you love most in your own life is also paired with this, this inexplicable ability to do real harm and hurt. The people you love the most are the people you hurt the most so often. And often it has to do with, uh, with our changeability, doesn't it? That you can be one way on one day and then wake up the next day and just get up on the wrong side of the bed and do a real bad job of loving the people who you love the most. That God's faithfulness endures forever means that his steadfast love is not like that. Not even a little bit. He never gets out of, the, uh, out of bed on the wrong side and just decides not to really do a good job of loving today. No, God's love is steadfast, it's faithful, and his faithfulness endures forever. It's the same each and every day. All of that, of course, could still be pretty abstract and uninspiring, except that God's steadfast, faithful, unchanging love has an object. This isn't just some kind of you know, idea that love is a nice thing that's out there in the universe. No, this is a personal love, and it's directed to an object. It's directed, the psalmist says, to us. This is a love to be experienced by you and by me, by us as a community together, by each of us individually. Something real and tangible and deeply, deeply true. The us spoken about in this psalm, of course, first and foremost is Israel. This is a song of ancient Israel sung in their temples, sung in their worship. When, uh, the, the, when the psalm says that his steadfast love and the faithfulness of the Lord endures to us, first and foremost what we're to hear is Israel. You see this is the job that god had given to israel israel's job was to tell the world around them about how god had promised to make them a nation out of tiny beginnings in abraham how he rescued them from slavery in egypt how he didn't turn around and abandon them in the desert when they turned out to be pretty rubbish at their job israel's story is the proof to the world of the character of god's love that he sticks with them again and again and again But the us of the psalm is broader than that, too, of course. It's the us of the whole human race, of those nations and peoples who are called to share in Israel's praise. Because just as God promised to make Israel into a great nation, so he promised to bless all peoples of the earth through them. The love of God for Israel is the model and the sign of his love for all the nations of the world, for people from every background, from every nationality, from every culture. So how can Israel be so bold as to call the nations to praise their God? Well, the simple answer is that there is no other God like this. That there is no other God who's committed to the people that he's made like this God is committed to his people through thick and thin, not turning around and just destroying them when they do the wrong thing, not turning around and abandoning them despite all of our attempts to put him off. There's no other God whose power is devoted to the good of what he's made like this God is there's no other God who is really for us. Wouldn't you want to praise that kind of God? Jesus extends this call to the nations in Psalm 117 after his resurrection as he meets with his disciples. The risen Lord Jesus commands them to make disciples of all nations. This command goes out not just from Israel but from all who trust in the God of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ to actually go and bring people into his family. Uh, In Revelation chapter 7 that uh, Yvonne read for us before, we have a vision of what that call to praise and discipleship looks like when it's completed in the new creation at the return of the Lord Jesus. Uh, John, uh, on the island of Patmos, uh, has this vision from God about what it looks like for, uh, for Jesus to be the Lord of the whole earth and here's the vision that he sees. After this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you're the one who knows. And then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason they before the throne of God, and they worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who's seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what it looks like when Psalm 117 finds its completion. This is what it looks like when uh, Jesus called to make disciples To make people who praise God, when that happens, this picture is where it ends. A multitude from every nation, tribe, people, language praising God together. The nations of the earth coming together, united and at peace around the throne of the true and living God. There are two things that this passage from Revelation 7 shows us, which is important, that actually helps us to understand where Psalm 117 is going. Two things that are really important to recognize. Firstly, Revelation 7 shows us that. Unity is not the same as uniformity. All the nations of the world are here, united around the throne, praising God, at peace with one another, and yet they're all still recognizable as distinctive nations, as distinctive cultures with their own distinctive languages. You see, what's happening here is not that all of a sudden all the differences between human beings are being flattened out so that everyone becomes the same, whether it's European or otherwise. Now, what happens is that all those things that make each nation, each culture, each language distinctive makes it its own particular thing that God has made, the beautiful differences we see in the world around us, and to turn those things toward God in praise. Unity is not the same as uniformity. God, in fact, celebrates the differences that he's given to the nations as he's made them and brings them together in the praise of the Lord Jesus So the first thing to notice is that unity is not uniformity the second is what it is that actually unites them what unites them what's the focus of their praise what brings them together is the blood of the lamb well they've found all these different nations in all of their particularity with all of their different cultures and different languages they've all found in this lamb the lord jesus christ in his blood in his death for us on the cross a love that is strong a love that never fails, a love that accepts as well as transforming. You want to know how great the steadfast love of God is? That's where you go, to the blood of the Lamb, where he was powerful to save, a God who is so steadfast and faithful that he gave up even his own life so that others might come to know and praise him. As we noted earlier, the first nations of Australia are among those who've heard this call, who've joined in the praise of the Lamb. Those nations represented there in Revelation 7 include a whole bunch of our First Nations people. Uh, Here's how one of them has represented that. Uh, This is an image by an Indigenous Christian artist. Her name is Glenny Naden. Uh, This uh, painting is called So Loved. It's based uh, not on Psalm 117 or Revelation 7, but on another verse that has a very similar message, a verse which uh, you all know and love, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life." Uh, You can see in the picture there are some little semicircles around the place. Uh, In lots of indigenous art, uh, a semicircle like that represents a person. And as Glenny Naden describes uh, in the the book I took this image from, uh, she describes her own painting. Uh, She was inspired reflecting on that verse about God's love for the whole world uh, to paint people in all kinds of different colors because she knows that uh, her own nation has heard the gospel that all kinds of other nations represented amongst Australia have heard the gospel, that other First Nations have heard the gospel, and she wanted to represent that in painting. And so you see there as well what those different people are facing, right? They're all turned toward the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the God who sent him, (coughs) represented uh, as the Trinity in that uh, figure right at the top there. This is what it looks like for Psalm 117, for that call to praise to go out. For all people, no matter their backgrounds, no matter their culture, to come together and bring all of those things to the praise of the true and living God. One of the ways in which European settlement has done uh, enormous harm to our First Nations people has been through the destruction of languages. Now, there are all kinds of indigenous languages that just aren't spoken anymore, that just don't exist anymore, that even native speakers, if there are any of them left, don't know how to speak anymore. It's a deep tragedy because, of course, language is one of the ways that we express ourselves most deeply. We, we need words, we think in words, we feel in words, we communicate in words. In God's kindness, one of the blessings of the gospel coming to this land has, on the other hand, been the preservation of indigenous languages, especially through the work of missionaries in translating the Bible. Uh, missionaries went out to all parts of the country, some of them did a pretty rubbish job of uh, caring for and uh, interacting with the indigenous people they met some of them did a great job it's a real mix of stories but one thing that was pretty consistent was that missionaries wanted to translate the bible into the languages that they encountered so i want to read for you a story from a missionary who worked to translate the bible into the wubai language of arnhem land uh, in the northern territory working in the 1940s it turns out that wubai is uh, one of the most grammatically complicated languages known to have ever existed in the world So it took him a little while to work out how to do this. Uh, He enlisted uh, some Wubai women who'd become Christians in the work together with him. Uh, uh, They spoke English better than he spoke Wubai, so uh, 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 he got them involved in this work. And he tells a story about when he'd finally finished translating a bunch of stories from Mark's Gospel and sat down around the campfire to read them. Uh, This is a story about uh, Wubai speakers uh, hearing the the Bible in their own language for the very first time. Uh, let me read you his recollections of that moment. At the campfire one night, listening intently, was Mardi, a powerful elder. After the second reading, he got up from the fire and left. No one knew why, but he'd set off to walk back to his own country, 300 kilometres to the north. There, Mardi and other men made a little fleet of dug-out canoes, and in them, Mardi brought 60 of his people back down the coast and up the Roper River. The journey took them two weeks, living on fish, turtles, and water lilies. So it was that one night, as I was reading some of the last chapters of Mark's gospel by the campfire, that I glimpsed Marty in the firelight, standing just behind the eager listeners. I held up my handwritten sheets of paper. Anambalaman Analahu, I said, the good story. You I, Matty replied, yes, it is true. And 60 of his people emerged from the shadows to crowd around the fire. Marty had brought them to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. God's spirit felt close to us that evening. I read it and read it again, urged on by the listeners over and over long into the night. When at last my voice started to give out, they let me stop. Marty came forward and asked to hold in his hands the sheets of paper I'd written on. I knew he could not read, but he wanted to touch them for himself. You, are, he said again, it is true. He tried to speak, but I didn't understand. My wubai was not good enough for such deep thoughts. Marty signalled to others to interpret for him, and through them he told me that he once used to think that Jesus was the God only of the white man, but that now he understood that Jesus was also the God of the black man. I asked him which stories had impressed him, what had convinced him that the life of Jesus was true. He looked down at the sheets of paper and looked up at me again, his eyes bright in the firelight. It's not the stories, he said, it's the words. Now I know that Jesus speaks Wubai. See what's going on here. He realised that actually this God, who these white missionaries from Europe had been calling him to praise, really was his God. And how did he learn that? Because this God didn't come in and say, be more like this. This God spoke his own language. This God came to him and said, you know what, Wubai isn't some kind of backward language that we should get rid of. No, it's a tool for praising the true and living God. He came and he turned Wubai into an instrument of praise. You may have heard missionaries and Bible translators speak about the concept of heart language. Have you heard this term before? A heart language is the language that you know best, that you know deepest, usually the language that you grew up speaking the language you naturally think in, the language that you feel in, the language that you're most comfortable communicating in. So much of Bible translation is the work of trying to translate the scriptures into the heart language of a particular people, so they can really know and understand it as deeply as possible. That's exactly what was going on for Wubai speakers in the 1940s. They heard God speak to them about his love for them in Jesus in their own heart language. You see what's going on in psalm 117 as it calls on people to praise the, this lord all nations to praise this one god it's getting at the, the the heart of the gospel here that god speaks to you in your heart language that all of those things that are particular about you that make you you and not someone else god speaks to you in those things directly to those things Because he wants those things for himself. He wants those things to be turned to his praise, which is what he made you for. So all of your particular fears, all of your particular longings, even all of your particular sins, Jesus speaks to you in those things. The love that we see in Psalm 117 is a love of God, especially seen in Jesus, and it's big enough to embrace the whole of humanity that includes every one of you and me as well. And into that, Jesus, into those particular fears, Jesus speaks safety. Into those particular longings, he speaks fulfillment. Into those particular sins, he speaks forgiveness. There are all kinds of ways in which we want to be included in something, that we want to be validated by the love of those around us, the love of them for us as we are, without any strings attached. That's what God holds out to us in Jesus. He speaks to you in your own heart language so that you might know that you belong with him. That you can find yourself in him. Jesus won't leave you as you are, but he wants to take you as you are. Just as he spoke to those people in Wubai, so he speaks to you in your own heart. How did it happen? How was it that you can be included in this family that God makes through his love? Well, you were included, of course, because Jesus was excluded He stood on the outside he stood with all the wrong people he said all the wrong things he was outcast from his society he was left abandoned by his family and his friends he was excluded in the end even by his own father who left him to hang on a cross and you see he did that so that each one of us might be included that we might know the love that makes us his a love that turns our hearts to praise Another translation of uh, this psalm uh, translates uh, the line uh, for uh, great is his steadfast love toward us. It says, his kindness overwhelms us. That's what's going on as you hear God speak to you in Jesus, in your own heart language. That's what happens, actually, as you see that Jesus meets all of those fears, all of those longings, even meets all of your sins. You get a sense of his deep, deep kindness toward you. And It's overwhelming. And that's what turns a heart to praise. That's the kind of love that's on display here in Psalm 117. So what are we going to do about that? How are we going to put that kind of love into practice? Well, there are just two things, really, that I want to say to you about practicing this. Um, Firstly uh, is the idea of welcome. The Apostle Paul quotes this psalm uh, in Romans 15. I'm going to read it for you in just a moment. Uh, It's a passage which uh, is the end of a long and uh, at times rather complicated argument, explaining how it is that God came first to the nation of Israel, made them his special people, gave them his law, so that they might be a light to the nations. So that the nations might see in Israel something about this God who loves the whole world and join them in their praise of him. Uh, Paul is speaking to uh, a bunch of uh, Christians, some of whom come from a Jewish background, some of whom come from uh, the other nations of the world, uh, and they're having a bit of trouble getting along with each other. Uh, in fact, in this particular instance, in, in Romans, it's the, the, the non-Jewish Christians who seem to really have it in for the Jewish Christians, who want to say, you guys are second-rate because you're only Jews, but we really we came to this from outside. Paul wants to say, no, 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 don't have a bar of that at all. And in his argument, as it comes to its conclusion, he quotes this psalm. Let me read for you from Romans 15, starting at verse 7. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, that is, of Israel, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the nations might glorify God for his mercy, as it's written, therefore, I will confess you among the nations and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O nations, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you nations, and let all the peoples praise him. You see, if this, if this is true, if the steadfast love of the Lord really is big enough that actually it's worth calling other nations to join in his praise, then you need to be a person of welcome. Someone who says to people around you, no matter what their background, no matter what their personality, no matter what their likes and dislikes, that you're welcome with me in this family. Right here in this uh, very room, the same people who you sit with here week in, week out, who you meet with in your fellowship groups, who you hang out at the pub and in cafes with, you've got to make space for these people. You've got to make room in your lives to love them. That's what it looks like to be someone who sings this psalm, who lives out this praise of the true and living God shown most deeply to us in Jesus. It may be, I'm just saying, it might be that there are people even in this very room who you don't like very much. possible. You've got to welcome them, right? They might be different to you for all kinds of reasons. You might dislike them for all kinds of reasons. You might just not click whatever it is. But this call to all nations, to all peoples, has gone out to them just as it's gone out to you. And so you need to be someone who welcomes it's great that in our congregation, um, there, there are multiple nations represented. I mean, we're, we're fairly Anglo, but we do have uh, other nations represented here too, which is a really, really wonderful thing. Not only that, of course, there are different backgrounds, different professions, uh, different social statuses, different personalities, all kinds of ways in which we're different to one another. We all want to find inclusion. Here's how it happens in the love of God through Jesus. And one of the ways that that's lived out most profoundly, most deeply, and I know for a lot of you, you feel it very, very deeply here in our community, this is where it happens, right? As people who know together the love of God, who sing his praises together and so welcome one another, make space for one another. This is also going to mean, uh, I think, uh, that we should be people who are really, really good at welcoming our First Nations people. If there's anyone in the world who should be good at, at saying, you guys, we love you and we're on for you and we celebrate your difference and we want to be as one with you, it should be us, right? If the gospel can bring Jews and Gentiles together, then surely the gospel can be the power that we need to bring reconciliation to a broken land like ours. Uh, There's an indigenous Christian leader. Her name is uh, Auntie Jean Phillips. Um, She's a remarkable, remarkable woman in all kinds of ways. Uh, You know what she says, what she says about all this? She says when people ask her about what it means, uh, what it would look like for reconciliation to happen in our country, she says the cross has all the answers. You know, she says, I think she's quite right, that you know the church is the only place where any meaningful, substantive difference is going to happen because we know what it is to be truthful about ourselves in all of our wrongdoing and sin and evil and to know forgiveness in that to know reconciliation to the, the one true and living God of the universe and therefore to each other as we welcome each other as well. The cross has all the answers. And so as we welcome one another, we're going to be the kind of people who will be really, really, really on for actually healing the wounds at the heart of a nation like ours. It's no different, actually, really, from loving one another here in this room together tonight. It's exactly the same thing. It's the same love of God expressed in a different direction, perhaps in different ways at different times. But it starts here with us in this room welcoming one another. So if you're going to sing this psalm, if you really believe that the gospel has gone out to all nations, that everyone's called to praise this God because he loves them, then you'll be someone who welcomes. Secondly, you'll be someone who sings. Seems pretty obvious, really, doesn't it? This is a song. The psalms are a book of songs given to ancient Israel to sing in their corporate worship together. You'll sing if you know this love. I don't know about you, there are two times in my life when I feel most connected to God. Uh, The first is when I have done something that I really know is wrong and I've been avoiding talking to God about it, then I finally get to the point of actually saying, no, no, we need to do business about this, and just remind it again and have my heart and my mind blown wide open by his love for me despite the fact that I'm so rubbish so much of the time. That's the first time. The, The second thing that actually makes me feel most connected to God for me is singing, Actually, the moment when I felt most uh, homesick when I was uh, on holidays recently is actually when I uh, stood up in uh, church in uh, Oxford, uh, visiting my uh, brothers, and uh, one of them uh, has a a wife and a child who live there as well. Visiting my family there, we stood up in church and we we sung a song that we sing here. Right, it's this moment of being connected with God and with His people in song as we worship and praise Him together. It's one of the things that, for me, makes me feel most connected to God. It might not be for you. That's okay. And there are different things because different personalities, right? Different kinds of people are all called to praise the same God. But it makes sense, I think, that, uh, that singing is at the heart of what Christians have done throughout the whole history of the church, that Israel always did it in the Old Testament too. Uh, here's my theory. This is not from the Bible. This is just me at this point, so take it with a grain of salt. But singing, I think, is one of those things that we do where our bodies... Our minds and our souls are just all lined up and directed toward the same thing at the same time. As you use your body to produce sound, as you think about the words that you're singing together, as you pour your heart out to God in praise, your whole person is devoted to God at that point. He's given over to his worship. Uh, That's why, actually, it doesn't matter if your singing sucks. Can I just say that? If you feel like you're just not a very good singer, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. He made you the way that you are. So if anything, it's his fault that you can't sing very well. Pour yourself out to God in praise. It's also one of the reasons I think that sometimes we hold ourselves back a little bit from singing, even in church, even though we do it every week. Because it's a whole person thing, right? It can be quite confronting to let go enough to actually give yourself to praise in that way. But can I say as well that no one's going to care. If you do that here, we all love this God. We know his love for us. That's why we sing together. Give yourself to his praise. There's a second reason that that singing matters so much, I think, uh, and that is seen in the very fact that this call to the nations in Psalm 117 comes in in the form of a song, right, in the form of one of these psalms. How do the nations hear that they're supposed to praise this God? They hear it from Israel singing about it, right? There's a way in which our singing together is actually a sign, an invitation to the world to join us in that song, to actually come to God in praise. Uh, John Dixon, uh, author, uh, theologian, writer, all-around nice guy, Uh, has a great book, the best book I think that has ever been written about um, mission and evangelism. Uh, It's called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, which is a stupid name by an American publisher. It used to be called Promoting the Gospel, and that was better. Anyway, rant aside, one of the chapters of his book about how Christians promote the gospel, how they do mission, is a chapter on what we do in church on a Sunday. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, through public praise... We announce God's mercy and power to those who overhear us, who have not yet been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. He continues our songs, our creeds, our prayers, our sermons, our testimonies, perhaps even the weekly notices, maybe, are all announcements of the wonders of God. As such, they not only inspire the regulars, They can also help visitors realise what believing in Christ is all about. See what he's getting at? If someone walks into this room and just sees that these people are so overwhelmed by God's kindness, see that these people are so overwhelmed by the depths of his love for them in Jesus, that they would give themselves over like this, to expressing themselves like this, that says something really profound about the kind of love that we've experienced in him. And so sing, sing your little hearts out, every one of you, and give praises to God. Last thing before I uh, get down. Uh, You've heard uh, it said from time to time, I'm sure, that uh, memorizing parts of the Bible is really good. It's true. It is really good. It's also really hard. Uh, I'm not very good at it. Most of you probably aren't either. But uh, here's the great thing about Psalm 117. It's only two verses long. I reckon you could memorize this, you know. I reckon you could very, very easily this week memorize this psalm. This is a great one to memorize, I reckon, because as I said right up the, up the top of the sermon tonight, the whole heart of the gospel that the Bible uh, preaches that God has given us in Jesus is right here. That everyone is called to praise this God because he loves them. So think about memorizing this as a one uh, application, if you like, uh, of hearing it uh, read and preached tonight. Uh, because this right if you keep remembering again and again if you have this as a little mantra in the back of your mind if you say and pray and sing this to yourself it's this reminder of god's love that's going to sustain you against the objections of the world in whatever form they take they'll remind you that no this isn't childish and stupid this is powerful this isn't actually offensive and objectionable this is a beautiful imitation it's singing this little psalm that's going to sustain you against whatever temptations the world throws at you To go, sure, there are all kinds of things that the world offers, but nothing like this love. If this little psalm becomes the song of your heart, then you'll have a heart that expands and grows and continues to overflow with the love of God for every person. You'll be the kind of person who can welcome everyone around you. You'll be the kind of person who sings, whether well or not, because you're full of the love of God. So praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord.